0: Mark chapter 1, let's begin reading together, picking up where we left off last week with verse 21. And they, that is Jesus, and the disciples whom he had called thus far, went into Capernaum. And immediately on the Sabbath he entered the synagogue and was teaching. And they were astonished at his teaching... Of Galilee. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be, to God. Thanks be to God. Father, we thank you for your word, that you have preserved it for us, that you have given to us your spirit, who, as you promised in John 17, would both be with us and dwell in us. And it is by the certainty of your spirit uh, that we can understand and apply. Uh, These sacred but ancient words. Uh, And so may you be our teacher today. May we all, as a body of Christ, sit at the feet of our Savior and Teacher. And may you compel us to action. May you draw us close to yourself. And may you form us into your likeness. Little by little, sermon by sermon. Reading by reading, day by day. And we ask humbly that you would use this time to do one portion of that amazing and beautiful lifelong process. And for that, we say expectantly, thank you. And to you, we offer our minds and our attention this morning, in Christ's name. Amen. Maybe be seated. With great demonstrations of power, Jesus displays his ability to judge and to save. With great demonstrations of power, Jesus displays his ability to judge and to save, to cast out and to rescue, to punish and to redeem. If the region of Galilee had a newspaper, the headline on Sunday morning, the day after these events occurred, would read something like this. New teacher blows minds, casts out demons, becomes overnight sensation. Who is he? The story that we read together is pretty straightforward, right? But in the context of Jesus beginning his ministry, it's very important for one specific reason, demonstrations of power, demonstrations of power. Here in this border town, if you will, Mark describes the beginning of Jesus' teaching ministry this way. Just a few verses prior, he began to preach, saying, The time is fulfilled. The kingdom is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. The next natural question is this. How and where did Jesus preach this basic message? The verses that come after what we just read together provide the answer, right? This was his basic message, repent and believe in the gospel. Did he just say those same few words over and over again? Well, we should assume not, and the narrators tell us otherwise. And so, in what context, and with what words, and in what manners did Jesus begin to preach this basic message summarized by these few phrases? Well, here we have it. What eventually led to large public open-air addresses began and was repeatedly done in the small local synagogue. Eventually, he was too famous to even go into the middle of a town... And so, droves by the thousands followed him out to the middle of nowhere, and there he would teach them. But at first, he would go into a town, he would stay there, and he would teach first in their synagogue. In various ways, through various scriptures, with authority, insight, clarity, and boldness, Jesus would preach, repent, and believe in the gospel. Make sense? A sic parvis magna is a famous Latin phrase meaning greatness from small beginnings. And truly, Mark's depiction of Jesus' early teaching ministry embodies this idea <coughs> small beginnings. An obscure man walks into a local house of instruction. And when the people leave, they're wondering who he is. Now, we know, those of us who know our Bibles know that in three years, everyone knew who he was, right? Greatness from small beginnings. In these verses, we are given occasion to consider both the context of the text that we're reading and a healthy way for Christians to engage with the Scriptures, As you read the Bible, as you study, as you seek independently uh, to not merely read, but to meditate and understand God's Word, um, I offer to you four questions as a helpful and repeatable framework. What happened? Why is this significant? How does it pertain to the gospel? And how does it apply to me? We will explore those four questions in this context but again, I offer this as to you as something of a, um, a, a scientific observation exercise. You can take these four questions and apply them to any text of Scripture and seek to find good answers to them as a healthy framework and a good way to read the Bible. What happened? Why is this significant? Because everything is, and not all things are equally significant, how does it pertain to the gospel? And then only last do we get to, how does it apply to me? Four questions in that order. Get it out of order and uh, don't ever come back. No, get it out of order and we'll find a reason to trip ourselves up. So let's do both the exercise as a teaching and seek to understand what's being ...communicated to us from Mark, the narrator. Well, again, question one, what happened? What happened? Basic observation skills, okay? Jesus is in a town called Capernaum. This is in the northwest corner of the region of Galilee, far from the cultural and spiritual center of Israel, Jerusalem. In an otherwise obscure and unimpressive location, William Barclay says Jesus launches his campaign... Right, I read a headline this weekend that John Kerry would be temporarily pausing his work as the climate czar in order to engage in his work as the campaign climate czar. Yeah, exactly. That's what I said, too. What? No, I mean, I, he's still going to go to the, um, <clears throat> the, the, the climate summit over in Sweden, um, <clears throat> but then he'll hit the campaign trail for President Biden. Uh, To tout the president's successes as it relates to stopping the destruction of the world because of climate change. He will, in effect, launch his campaign to tout his president. Well, this is how Barclay summarizes this moment in Jesus' ministry. He goes... To the synagogue and he goes to an obscure place, to a little town with a bunch of seemingly like a bunch of nobodies. Like it's, it's like us. It's like us in the little corner of Charlotte. Right? And he just sits down and he teaches. And everyone goes, Whoa. wow. So this is the context. What happened? He went to an obscure town at the corner of the nation. And he went into the synagogue specifically. Now, we might associate the local synagogue with the local church. We might think of it with a measure of equivalency. And to one extent, that's a reasonable comparison, but not entirely. The name synagogue means house of instruction, not house of worship, but house of instruction. And in this space, that was what is to happen On the Sabbath day, the scrolls of the Old Testament would be brought out, read, and explained. Prayers would be offered, but critically, worship was to be done in Jerusalem at the temple. So no music, no sacraments, no singing, no worship, only prayer, the reading of Scripture, and the explanation of it. The Talmud required that wherever there were ten Jewish families, a synagogue must be established. And as a result, these local houses of instruction were scattered all over Israel and beyond. Where there were larger population centers, there would just be more of these small houses of worship. Not one big one, per se, but like in Jerusalem, uh, in the first century, there were 500 local synagogues in and around the city. During the week, the synagogue would serve as a place of instruction for children learning the Torah... And then as a local courthouse where the elders of the town would adjudicate disputes. But of course Mark tells us that it was on the Sabbath day that Jesus entered the synagogue. And he did what happens on the Sabbath day in the synagogue in first century Israel. He began to teach. Now, a casual reader might ask, as I would... Under what pretense is Jesus speaking in this local place of instruction? He is seemingly a stranger to them. So can anyone just walk in and just say, I'm teaching today? That seems a bit um, haphazard, doesn't it? Well, uh, there's an interesting thing. The synagogue had um, overseers and rulers and even ministers to an extent. But one thing they did not have was a standing, authoritative pastor. They had a minister who was more of a servant, who would generally care for the synagogue, but the teaching was reserved and would be assigned, get this, to any qualified or competent member of the community. Traveling rabbis, of which there were many in the first century, would often be invited. Oh, a rabbi's in town. How would they be identified? I'm not 100% sure. Maybe it's their hats. Um, maybe it's just their reputation. I'm not 1,000% sure. But rabbis would be invited. Oh, there's a rabbi in our midst today. Would you like to give the message? And so it was under this common practice, this cultural norm, that Jesus entered the synagogue, requested a particular scroll from what we call the Old Testament. Read it or had it read, and then began to explain it. And so that's the third thing that we noticed then. It was in Capernaum, in the synagogue, he taught, but he taught with authority. And this was uniquely, Mark says, different from the way the scribes would typically teach. Well, get this. Since any competent teacher was permitted to assume this role... There must be some litmus test for who is considered incompetent. Right? Any qualified teacher could teach. So what's the test for who's unqualified? Well, that means that the community is is living in a constant state of analyzation. Any community gathered in the synagogue would be listening carefully to see if by error a presumed teacher would prove himself incompetent and unqualified. And they would say, nope, you have to stop talking now, right? Let someone who knows what they're doing speak up and teach. It's a very interesting sort of organic litmus test. But what it meant is the people were accustomed to doing one careful thing, listening intently, engaging the veracity Of the claims of exposition. That's a good culture. When the average teacher would teach the scribes, as they are specifically noted, he would bolster his insights with quotes of known other teachers in Israel. Sort of the way that I often quote MacArthur or Spurgeon or Calvin or Luther. They would quote so-and-so scribe from yesteryear. But when Jesus taught, he spoke without the need to, quote, flawed men who came before him. His insight and exposition of the scriptures was flawless, and it stood, if you will, on its own two feet. It was authoritative. It was excusia, is the word, such that the people were amazed Now, to just get a flavor of what this would have been like, I am reminded of two specific things. Number one, I'm reminded of the conversation between the disciples on the road to Emmaus. Jesus appeared to them, and he walked with them, and he talked with them. And we read in Luke 24 that he explained to them the scriptures. And then he had a meal with them and suddenly vanished from the dinner table. And afterwards, they looked at each other and said, didn't our hearts burn within us when he was teaching us? There is a sense, I believe, that that's what was happening in this local synagogue. The people were hearing the words, but their hearts were burning within them. And they were going, I've never heard anything like this. The second thing I'm reminded of is a moment when Jesus asked if if his disciples would also abandon him. You know, these people have left me. These people have left me. Are you going to leave as well? And Peter, the spokesman, rightly for the group, says, where else would we go? You alone have the words of life. And so I would imagine that as Jesus taught in that local synagogue in Capernaum that Sabbath day, there was, there was almost a, a nourishing, life-giving, rejuvenating overtone to his words. Were Jesus to come in the flesh and teach in this pulpit, do we not suppose that our hearts would also burn in us? As the living word expounded upon the written word... I'd be envious of the folks in this local synagogue if I weren't commanded to not envy. So that's what happened. Then the last thing, there's four observations. He's in Capernaum. He's in the synagogue. He's teaching with authority. People are right. And then, last thing, Jesus casts out a demon. The demon-possessed man is simply described as being among the people in the synagogue. Now, does it strike anyone else that a demon was comfortable in the synagogue until Jesus shows up? What was happening in that house of instruction that was so inoffensive to the demon that he could remain without discomfort? One of the early criticisms of my teaching here at Hillcrest was that the sermons are too much like Bible studies. To which I remarked, what were you expecting was going to happen at church? Right? And then I grieved what had been happening in this man's life Sunday after Sunday that would lead him to believe that something else is supposed to happen in the pulpit on Sundays. What was happening in that house of instruction that the demon could comfortably be among them and not be confronted by the truth of the scriptures? It's a troubling thought. Furthermore, how could a demon-possessed man be in and among the people of God in a house of instruction and prayer and no one else seem to notice? I contend that a great many churches today share these tragic characteristics. Ungodliness is welcome, unnoticed, and not confronted. However, I also contend that the genuine sheep of Jesus will at some point become aware of this fact and will be compelled by the Spirit to confront this like the Reformers did or disassociate from the apostate body like the Reformers did. God is the same today, yesterday, and forevermore, Hebrews 13. Jesus said to his disciples, You are the salt of the earth, you are the light of the world, and when the light is shown, the darkness flees. Like the demon, the darkness shrieks in terror, or else the darkness pushes back. The demon knew who Jesus was, and the scribes didn't. The Pharisees didn't. The people didn't, and his own disciples really didn't. They followed him, they believed him to be the Messiah, but they didn't know what that meant. And yet, the demon knows. Yet we also know that the knowledge of Jesus is insufficient to save this demon, which leads us to number two. What happened? Well, then why is this significant? What about these specific events is significant? Well, first and foremost, in Capernaum, in the synagogue, Jesus came teaching, quote, the lost sheep of Israel first. God is gracious and kind and fair and just. And he sent his Messiah to his people first. He came to his own, John 1, and they knew him not. To fulfill scripture, Jesus must first extend the hand to Israel and then have it rejected, Isaiah 53.3. So in order to fulfill scripture and to prove his identity, Jesus does what the Messiah is prophesied to do, to first come to his own people. And so this is where he launches his campaign, there in the house of instruction among the people of God. Why is it significant then that Jesus taught with insight and with authority? Again, I'm reminded of Peter's words. Where else would we go? You alone have the words of life. I've listened to um, quite a few sermons in my lifetime. Having grown up in the church, um, having attended Bible college, uh, having been a pastor for 15 years, and... um, And as a regular practice, I listen to sermons for sermon preparation for myself and also just because um, uh, sermons are are good to listen to. That's where you would say, amen, preacher. We love this. This is our favorite thing. (laughs) Yeah. I've listened to a lot of sermons, and some are better than others, right? Um, There are those sermons... um, that that feel like a TED talk, they're very insightful, but I don't walk away feeling like I've heard the words of life. And there are other sermons that that are bathed and drenched in the text itself, reaching into the text, compelling me, the learner, to peer into the text and say, look at what it says. And in those moments, I feel like Peter. You alone have the words of life, right? Like my heart is filled up, my spirit is pricked, and my conscience is stirred and rejuvenated, right? And so it was when Jesus taught. It would not be like those clever but lifeless sermons, it would be like one with authority that would leave the people amazed. The scribes would offer five theories about what something meant. Jesus taught them the truest, purest, most insightful interpretation. It blew their minds. The word is astonished, expresso. It shares the root with the Greek word strike. When Mark was seeking to convey how the people responded to the teaching of Jesus, it was like they were punched in the face. Praise God. But that's it. Mark said, how how shall I describe? How the people responded to the teaching of Jesus. It was like they were being struck in their core. There are a number of ways that the Greek language could be used to describe this phenomenon. This is the strongest one available. Such that they were mesmerized. And so too it is with us, friends. You yeah? When we read the word, we meditate on the word, and we engage the word with humble contrition, aren't our minds often blown? Aren't we often struck? Well, finally, Jesus casts out the demon. What's significant about that? Well, it's a demonstration of power over the forces of evil. The demonstration of power over the forces of evil. Power in the conveyance of the truth, but also power over darkness. It is significant because this is at the heart of the good news. Jesus is greater than the forces of evil. The demons obey him in other parts. We'll get to this in Mark in chapter 3 and chapter 5. Sometimes the demons, when he enters a town, they come up to him and they bow before him. They certainly obey him, they certainly acknowledge him, and by their own admission, they know that he is the one who will judge them for all of eternity. Just we can go back to the text. Verse 24. What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? Is it not an admission that they know he can? They perhaps know he will. And Revelation tells us that in the end, at the throne of judgment, Satan and his demons will be cast by Jesus into the lake of fire. It is the opening statement. Jesus demonstrates power to redeem And to judge, to cast out, and to rescue. Which brings us to number three, how does this pertain to the gospel? How does this pertain to the gospel? Always the right third question. Uh, It was um, Spurgeon, I believe, who said... I can get to the cross from any place in the text of Scripture. And if I can't find a road from here to there, I will forge a path. <laughs> I will chop down trees and clear the way. I will make a way. His point was simply this. The whole Bible is about Jesus the whole Bible is about the gospel. In one way or another, in one form or another, you can go read like I did with my kids a couple days ago. 2 Kings chapter 5 and 6, which is like Solomon's building a really impressive house. And you go, okay, let's find Jesus. You know, It's there. And so how does this pertain to the gospel? Well, if Jesus is to establish his kingdom... As his preaching is summarized, the kingdom is at hand. If Jesus is to establish his kingdom on earth, he must overthrow the existing ruling authority. And we know that Satan and his demons are the existing ruling authority because of how Paul speaks of our salvation in Ephesians chapter 2. You were dead, Christian. You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world. Listen, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh. Again, in a a big picture sense. In the fall, Adam surrendered the authority over the earth that was given to him by God to Satan. And Satan, if you will, under the sovereign oversight of God, he ruled planet earth. And then Jesus shows up and says, I'll take that. Thank you very much. Right? And so if Jesus is going to establish his authority, he must do what? He must displace, overthrow... The existing ruling authority. Secondly, if Jesus is to rescue sinners from Satan's clutches, he must prove to them. He must display authority over Satan's power. See, this demon had this man, if you will, by the throat. And Jesus says, let go of him. John MacArthur says Jesus didn't perform exorcisms. Exorcisms are are a a process of wailing and asking and and, and, and repeated and da-da-da-da. No, Jesus just spoke, and it happened. This was not a contest. It was the stamping of a ruling authority. Friends, I would say, if we might jump ahead to number four, which we're not, but if we might, if we would for a moment... Now that each of us uh, were like this man who had a demon clutched around his own throat, strangling him and holding him. So too it was with us in our sin and our slavery to sin. We were overpowered, but with just a word, Jesus said, Let them go, right? It's a wonderful picture. If Jesus is to rescue sinners from Satan's clutches, he must display power over Satan's authority or display authority over Satan's power. Hebrews 2, since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things that through death, listen, he might destroy the one Who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. You will bruise his head, but he will, excuse me, you will bruise his heel, but he will crush your head. Thirdly, if Jesus is to assure his followers of eternal life, he must display power that is beyond the temporal world. It was like a showdown happening in the spiritual realm. Everyone else was going, I don't see it. <laughs> What's going on here? These two guys are fighting, but I don't see the blows being exchanged. This is a power that is beyond the temporal world. There are forces at work that are beyond this temporal world. It is appointed for all men once to die and then comes the judgment. Something happens when we breathe our last. If we are to have confidence as we approach, for some of us it's nearer than others, as we approach that moment of the end of our lives, if we are to have confidence that Jesus will catch us, He must display power that is beyond this temporal world. Or, as MacArthur puts it, he must have power that extends into the universe. <laughs> um, Michael Gunger uh, is the latest Christian artist, I use that term loosely, uh, who rose to fame under the auspices of contemporary Christian music. He wrote that song, um, Beautiful Things. Maybe you guys might remember from like 15 years, 10 years ago. You make beautiful things. You make beautiful things out of us. Anybody? It's a good jam. Like, it swells and it starts to dry, right? And the musician in me is like, yeah, that's normal. You know what I'm saying? Now but Ganga is the latest um, in this specific group. Demographic, um, to succumb to what I'm calling the fastest growing heresy in America, Christian deconstructionism. Christian deconstructionism is a version of Christianity which seeks to cling to the parts about Jesus that our culture finds palatable while denying the saving message of the true gospel. Gunger has released a series of posts on social media over the past year saying things like, The only place you will ever find truth, capital T, is within yourself. A more heretical phrase I don't know that I've ever heard. And then, if you think the good news is that you're a wretch, there's better news. What Gunger and others like him are doing is treating the scriptures like a buffet. They affirm the Jesus who feeds the poor and the hungry, um, but not the Jesus who said, I am the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. If anyone will be my disciple, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me, along with repent and believe in the gospel, go And sin no more. I did not come to bring peace. But a sword that divides families. Brother will betray brother. Father will give up son. And daughter will give up mother. Because of my words. It will divide families. Because truth divides. You see. Unlike these heretical claims, the good news is that you are a wretch. And Jesus came to save wretches. He even said I didn't I didn't come for the well the righteous Those who find true truth within themselves, okay, you have your God. You have your salvation inside yourself, apparently. We'll see how that turns out in the end. Jesus said, I, as a doctor, came to save the sick. Those who know they are ill. Those who come and say, give me the medicine. Those who are made aware By the Spirit, that they are wretches, that they are in desperate need. This is why it is good news. Jesus came to save wretches, not merely from the consequence of sin, but from sin itself. Sin's penalty in eternity, yes, but sin's power over you on earth now, and ultimately sin's presence, as Alistair Begg puts it. Penalty, power, presence. What the purveyors of Michael Gungor's brand of Christianity promote is a palatable Jesus. A universalist Jesus. A Jesus that only comforts but does not confront. A Jesus that accepts you but does not change you. Therefore, what they're actually promoting is Satan. Wrapped in a grotesque veneer attempting to imitate the appearance of Jesus. But the attempt is so ad hoc... That any amount of scrutiny sees it for what it truly is, deception wrapped in shiny foil. In first century Israel, demon possession was an effective form of deception until Jesus broke their veil of power in the world. Today, demon possession is much less effective when compared to these seeming compassionate versions of Christianity promoted by famous artists. Who, as Jude describes, have crept in, twisting the truth of the gospel. Burke Parsons puts it this way. It's true Jesus was a friend of sinners, but because he was a true friend, he called those friends to repent and believe. Jesus' power over the forces of darkness is a concrete display of his ability to save your body and soul from the clutches of sin, Satan, hell, and death. And this was, if you will, an authoritative stamp at the initiation of his campaign to rescue the world. You are a wretch, but in Christ, your wretchedness stands no chance against the power of the blood of Jesus shed for you. My sins, they are many. His mercy is more. However, if you minimize your own wretchedness, as Christian deconstructionism does, you will inevitably diminish the power of Jesus necessary to save you. And if you do this, you redefine Jesus' message... You redefine Jesus' ministry, and you redefine Jesus' identity. An appropriate holy fear of God will not allow the truly redeemed to do this. And the sheep of Jesus' flock know his voice and will not answer to a false shepherd. So how does this pertain to the gospel? In those particular ways. Finally, number four, how does this apply to me? Um, the demon had knowledge, but he wasn't saved. There's an element of that that should frighten us. Right? Adjacent to the church is not part of the church. Intellectual assent cannot save you. Sanctification by osmosis is a farce. You cannot simply be in and around the people of God to be among the people of God. You must repent and believe. The demon knew who Jesus was, but the demon was not saved. The demon was subdued by Jesus, but he was not saved. The demon was terrified of Jesus, but he was not saved. The people were astonished. Doesn't mean they were saved. The people were exposed to the truth, they heard it, doesn't mean they were saved. The people were introduced to God, doesn't mean they were saved. Those who saw and heard but did not repent and believe will occupy the same hell reserved and designed for the demons. While many people will react to Jesus, only those who repent and believe in the gospel will Be saved. The demons believe and tremble, James tells us, and so mere belief isn't enough. It is belief with repentance. Holy fear is a good thing. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, but it is holy fear and repentance. Not fear of demons, not fear of darkness but fear of the one who can destroy both body and soul. Finally, as Christians, we should be confident that we are on the side of the truth and the ruling power of the world and God alone will be revealed in God's perfect timing. Now, the truth is suppressed. The truth is now being called a lie. The Christian is being vilified Falsehood is promoted. And wickedness sits in the seat of power, as the preacher in Ecclesiastes describes. And so we need to be reminded and assured that regardless of what is happening in our culture around us, the Jesus we believe in has displayed himself powerful enough to save And in the end, he will reveal himself to the world with unquestioned revelation accordingly. This is what we will see on that last day. Psalm 93, the Lord reigns. He is robed in majesty. The Lord is robed. He has put on strength. As his belt. Yes, the world is established, it shall never be moved. Your throne is established from old, you are from everlasting. The floods have lifted up, O Lord, the floods have lifted their voice, the floods lift up their roaring. Mightier than the thunders of many waters, Mightier than the waves of the sea, the Lord on high is mighty. Your decrees are very trustworthy. Holiness befits your house, O Lord, forevermore. Allow me to read this quotation from Steve Lawson. Because I'm not Jesus, I do quote other people. And allow this to remind and encourage us. The Lord reigns. Not God and. God alone reigns. No one else reigns. Nothing else reigns. Not Satan. Not God and Satan. Not good men. Not evil men. Not God and man. Not world rulers. Not circumstances, not blind faith, not good luck, bad luck, chance, accidents, random occurrences, good karma, bad karma. There is only one who reigns, and it is Almighty God by Himself. Amen. Amen. Yeah. And Jesus seeks to assure us this morning that we are on the side of the one who reigns by demonstrations of power. Well, let's pray together.